tell each other that this day will be will be the last and tomorrow we all can go home free and all this will finally end Palestine will be free Palestine, tomorrow will be free. Palestine, tomorrow will be free.
Assalamu alaikum everyone, this is Brother Mahaj Zain. My latest news from Harzin Melody, what good is music if it ain't
Waiting for Jackson Brown here to play his Drums of War song. Here we go. Roll out the drums of war cover of the killing floor roll out the drums of war and let's speak of things worth fighting for roll out the drums of war roll out the drums of war the time comes when everything you ever thought you knew Comes crashing down and flames rise up in front of you. Roll out the drums of war. Roll back the freedoms that we struggled for. What were those freedoms for? Let's not talk about it anymore. Roll out the drums of war. Roll out the drums of war Whatever you believe the necessary course to be Depends on who you trust to identify the enemy Who beats the drums for war Even before the peace is lost who are the prophets for? And who are they who bear the cost when a country takes the low road to war? Who gives the orders, orders to torture, 
Who gets to no-bid contact the future? Who lies, then bombs, then calls it an error? Who makes a fortune from fighting terror? Who is the enemy trying to crush us? Who is the enemy of truth and justice? Who is the enemy of peace and freedom? Where are the courts now when we need them? Why is impeachment not on the table? We better stop them while we are able. Roll out the drums of war. Roll out the drums of war. If you know what your freedom's for, roll out the drums of war. Whatever you believe the necessary course to be Depends on who you trust to identify the enemy Who took this country to war Long before the peace was lost Who are the prophets for? And who are they who bear the cost? When a country takes the low road. Thank you. Jackson Brown there with uh, <clears throat> the drums of war. This is the B you're tuned to Radio Labor, Labor and Love Radio. One person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. You don't have a seat at the table, the negotiating table, that is, where you work. You're on the menu. And never but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. It's only a waste of time. Okay, we started out our set today with uh, three songs, hopefully, will further the cause of peace at this horrific moment in world history. But we're all, most of us, consigned to sit and watch as a horrific slaughter takes place. Joan Baez sang about another time when children were victimized in the cause of hate. Birmingham Sunday, I don't recall, it was a bomb set in a church in Birmingham, Alabama that blew up four uh, young black girls put a face on victims of Jim Crow in the South. Not that the North was much better. Birmingham Sunday. Jackson Brown, Drums of War, pertaining to the Vietnam War, and Mahar Zinn singing Palestine Will Be Free. I'm going to play that song every 
Sunday, every Saturday that I have left. As you may or may not know, sadly, Mutiny Radio is shutting down. And those several of us programmers on Mutiny are looking to move over to Radio Valencia, which so far has been open for our applications. Not that we'll get any good primetime hours. Not to be expected. That's what's happening. What have we got for you today? We've got a couple of new websites that I haven't used before. Um, Labor Lab, which is kind of a technocrat website supporting unionization. They've got a little nine or ten minute uh, video about captive meetings where there's a union campaign going on. The boss has the right to require you. Require you now. Go to a meeting and listen to anti-union propaganda campaign right now at Legoland, of all places. Legoland has hired a union-busting group of lawyers. Radio Labor, I think we got a short version today, but it talks about how labor unions are calling for peace in Gaza. Oakland teachers staged a sit-in, a teach-in last week about Palestine, and it looks like they're going to catch hell for doing so. One Jewish parent complained, and that started a snowball. you got to trust your teachers. When I was a teacher, and we would talk about um, sensitive sensitive issues in the classroom. I would always say, this is my opinion. And this is, and tell the other side as well. Even though in my mind there might not be another side, but I would say it anyway, you have to. As a teacher, you're not about proselytizing your kids or brainwashing them or getting them to think as exactly as you do about an issue. It's for them to take the path themselves and educate themselves and listen to different points of view. So far in Oakland, they're not trusting their teachers. And then the other um, website I had was Labor Heritage. Every week they put out uh, information for unionists and little labor history, a poem, a quote. Labor History in Two, one of our regular one of our regular uh, features from Rick Smith. Um, I'm going to play another song. 
other song that reflects the war. It's Willie Dixon. And if you've, you listen to the show, um, you'll know we play Willie Dixon all the time. Let's see. can get Willie on. Guess not. Take a second. Okay, coming right up. You know, the blues speak of so many things and making a kind of variety of the program. It requires a lot of different facts of life that we must know about. When you think about the various nations of the earth, the various religions of the earth, the various nationalities, the various people all over the world, we have been able to make anything that we want to make and do anything we want to do. have created miracles, but it don't make sense when we can't make peace. You know, you made everything else, wise men, great men, from every nation in the world, all the countries in the world, have all kinds of conventions and festivals all the money. Suppose you had to spend half as much money on trying to make peace as you have been making war. We wouldn't have to worry about nothing. But it don't make sense. It don't make sense. It don't make sense. When you can't make peace.
My apologies to those of you who are getting, don't want to keep hearing that song every week, but I'll tell you, I'm going to keep playing it as pieces. That might be a long time, too. Willie Dixon, one of the great American composers, a conscientious objector during the Second World War. Let's shift gears and see if something from Van Morris. Oh, the smell of the bakery from across the street Got in my nose yeah. yeah, we carried our letters down the street with the raw iron gate rolls I went home and listened to Jimmy Rogers in my lunch break Bought five woodbine at the shop on the corner and went straight back to work With the V We went for lemonade And Paris buns at the shop And broke the tea Watch out 
from the lady And I clean the fan light inside out I was blowing saxophone on the weekend In a down joint What's my life? I'll have to be cleaning windows Take my time I'll see you when my love grows Baby, don't let it slide I'm a working man in my prime Cleaning windows Number 36 Okay, this is The B, and you're listening to Labor and Love Radio. Let's talk a little. Labor. What does labor have to do with this war? 
Labor has to do with this war the same as anyone else. Standing around watching Israelis shooting fish in a barrel. The Palestinians can't leave and they can't stay where they are. Hamas is not blameless. I want to dedicate a part of this show to those Jewish people who refuse to swallow the Zionist lie, who stand up for humanity. They're few and far between, and they're catching hell for it right now. But there's never any time that's the right time as far as their enemies. All power power. Here's the International Labor Trade Union Confederation calling for a Gaza ceasefire. I'm Mark Belanger. The organization which represents trade unions globally has called for an immediate ceasefire in the Israeli-Hamas conflict. The International Trade Union Confederation represents national union centers such as the Ghana Trade Union Congress and the AFL-CIO in the United States. In a statement released today, the ITUC calls for a ceasefire and the return of all hostages and people held without legitimate legal reasons in Gaza and Israel. The Confederation is also calling for a major humanitarian effort for the people of Gaza and others displaced since the conflict began on October 7th. It has repeated its call for all governments to strive for peace and towards the realization of a two-state solution with an end to the occupation and two sovereign democratic countries living in conditions of lasting peace based on United Nations Security Council Resolutions 242 and 338. 242 calls for Israel's withdrawal from the territories it captured in 1967 in exchange for lasting peace. 338 was adopted during the Yom Kippur War of 1973 as the first of three resolutions which led to an end to the war. Israel withdrew from Gaza in 2005. Hamas began governing in Gaza in 2007. The ITUC's fight for peace in the world is long-standing. Its position on peace was recently reinforced by the ITUC's newly elected General Secretary, Luc Triang, in his acceptance speech at a special online congress October 12th. He emphasizes that there can be no peace in the world if the rights of working people are denied. Our world is going through serious geopolitical storms. There are armed conflicts in every region, and military coups are again the order of the day in many places. The global race for more armaments has never really gone away, but it is now accelerating again. World military expenditure grew by 19% over the last decade to reach a record high of over 2 trillion US dollar. We all see that the daily reality is moving into the wrong direction. Refugee flows, usually from those who are weakest in society, are increasing. Since the start of this year, over 100 million people had fled war, violence and persecution. And the impacts of climate change are driving more 
and more people to flee. As a trade union movement, we are at the heart of the peace movement, and we must continue to strive for dialogue to resolve existing conflicts and prevent new ones. This helps our members, this helps the weakest in our societies. Striving for peace is striving also for democracy. The failure of governments over many years to ensure the social contract is driving more and more people to the political extremes, fueling the extreme rights, exposing the vulnerable and eroding solidarity. The global architecture for peace and democracy must be underpinned by the new social contract at the global but also at national level. And what we see is also that the line between autocracies and democracy are blurring. When dialogue between states and the people breaks down, when nations flirt with autocracy to pass unpopular laws, when parliaments are put aside, when governments deploy state forces to quell lawful resistance, democracy is on the line and working people suffer the consequences. Across the world, we continue to see social regression rather than social progress. Authoritarian government responses to the different crises are on the rise, and the interests of companies, ultra-rich oligarchs, and the finance sector continue to predominate over the well-being of the majority of the population. And besides the direct and indirect consequences of war in a difficult geopolitical context, where workers are also suffering from the climate crisis, the food and energy crisis, and high inflation, which continues to undermine their purchasing power, pushing many of them further into poverty. The state of social justice in the world should shame us all. The top 1% has taken 38% of all wealth accumulated since the 90s, whereas the bottom 50% has gained over 2% and 685 million people still live in extreme poverty. Over 50 million workers are in modern slavery and at least 160 million children remain in child labour with numbers going up again after decades of decline. Every year, 3 million workers die at the workplace and hundreds of millions are injured or made ill because of work. More than 60% are working in the informal economy without any labor protection and 4 billion are excluded from social protection. These attacks on rights and the lives of trade unionists and indeed the converging crisis that we are facing need an all-encompassing response that will build more sustainable and resilient societies. A transformative agenda with social justice at the center. The IUC Congress last year launched our global trade union demand for a new social contract. It is our program to create a peaceful world with decent and climate-friendly jobs for all with just transition at the center with robust systems for public health and care. It calls for, our new social contract calls for, the creation of decent and climate-friendly jobs for all, 
through investments in strategic economic sectors such as care and sustainable infrastructure, which are transitions and the formalization of informal work. It calls for right for all workers, regardless of their employment status as promised in the ILO Centenary Declaration. It also calls for living minimum wages, pay rises to face the cost of living crisis and real and rapid progress on equal pay for women and men. At the current speed, women will only be paid equal wages in 257 years from now. It also calls for universal social protection, for equality, ending all discrimination on the basis of gender, race or any grounds. And our new social contract also calls for inclusion with a truly inclusive multilateral system and fundamental reform of international trade and finance. And colleagues, equality, equality must also apply just as much within the trade union movement, in our structures and in our programs. The ITUC has made progress on many of these areas in the last years, in the recent years. But today, the odds are stacked against working people and we need to do more. The core of our work is international trade union solidarity. International trade union solidarity. In a world where capital and companies are global, where our income and rights are systematically attacked in a coordinated manner by governments and employers, the way forward for trade unions is to strengthen our international cooperation and action. Workers of the world unite. That was already nearly 200 years ago, the slogan of the first trade unions. It is not different today. Workers of the world unite.
This is Solidarity News on Radio Labour. I'm Mark Boulanger. Artificial intelligence is being touted as a new way of providing education. But a recent report commissioned by Education International warns that it may be used to degrade the quality of education, worsen working conditions for teachers, and provide inferior schooling for students. EI is the Global Union for Teachers and Other Educators. It represents 32 million teachers and education support personnel in 178 countries. The new report is entitled The Unintended Consequences of Artificial Intelligence and Education. It was written by Wayne Holmes, an associate professor at University College London. I asked Mr. Holmes how AI technologies can replace teachers. I don't think AI can replace educators. That's my general point. The problem is that the history of the research of AI and education for 40 plus years now has all been about how can we automate what teachers do. Uh, Benjamin Bloom came up with the notion that having one-to-one tuition is much better for learning than when students are in a group situation. But the problem is that we can't have one-to-one tuition for every individual student. We don't have enough teachers. So the argument was, well, can we not use artificial intelligence to develop automated teachers? one-to-one for every student. So that's the background. But the problem is that what those tools do is actually very little compared to what a human teacher does. So as far as I'm concerned at the moment, there is no way that any AI tool that exists today is capable of replacing a human educator. But nevertheless, they are attempting to replace teacher function. And I've lost track of the number of times I've been at a big conference where a commercial AI edtech company will stand up and say, we believe that the teacher is the most important person in the classroom. And they spend 30 seconds telling us that, and then they spend 29 minutes and 30 seconds telling us how their tool is better than a teacher. So we have that pressure from the commercial sector, and we also have the pressure from policymakers and the school leadership team who are keen to go beyond human teachers if only they could because the AI doesn't go on strike, the AI doesn't need a holiday, the AI doesn't get sick. But if we could use AI, then that would be fantastic. Now, most of the people in the AI research community only believe that the tools they develop are useful for, I don't know, 10 minutes a day. But the emphasis we're getting elsewhere from the commercial sector and from policymakers is that these tools can eventually do the job of teachers. The reality is they simply cannot. But it's important we think about these issues so we don't sleepwalk into a situation where suddenly we do have situations where in a physical classroom the students are engaging with an AI tool and the adult human in the room, their job is just to switch the equipment on and maintain behaviour. If we're not careful, that's the direction we could end up. How could AI be used ethically and effectively to help educators in their work? We need to think about what are the actual problems that educators face on a daily basis. As I say, most of the research has been about automating what teachers do. My argument is 
that we should reconfigure that, change that trajectory, and be thinking about, well, how can we use these technologies to actually support teachers, to help teachers do what teachers believe are the problems that need to be addressed in the classroom? What can that involve? Well, I'm not being trite, but I think we need to speak to far more teachers to establish exactly what they need from these technologies. Now, a big caveat for that, most people are aware of now ChatGPT and the other generative AI that exploded into the scene just a year ago. And these tools are being sold not only as tools to support students, but also as tools to support teachers for things like lesson planning or preparing notes to slides. Now, like anything that is a short, it can be helpful, but being a shortcut means all the nuances, all the subtlety, all the expertise gets washed out. So we need to be really careful when teachers engaging with the tools that we have access to today to make sure that they're really critical with the outputs that they're being provided and that they only use them when they really do genuinely support what the individual educator is trying to achieve. One of the issues that Radio Labor has reported on is the use of educational tools designed by big, huge companies in Africa. What they do is they supply the educational material, maybe video, maybe sound, maybe books, whatever, but then they hire people who are not trained. They barely have a high school education. Do you think that's what's going to happen with AI? It's a, it's a really good point. Sometime I was um, speaking with people from the X-Prime, a big challenge-based organization in the USA that sets out in a million-dollar prizes for groups tackling big problems. And one big problem they set up was an AI system to replace a teacher. And I said to them, this is crazy. You know, you're, you're misunderstanding the role of a human teacher in a classroom. It's not just about getting across certain facts or information or training in certain skills. It's much more complex than that. It's about relationships, it's about collaboration. It's about enabling young people to become the best they can become, to self-actualize and to develop a young people who can contribute effectively to the society they're a part of. Education is not just about getting this information across. But they stopped me in my tracks and said, well, hang on a second. What about rural areas of developing countries where they don't have human teachers that can do what we've just been talking about? Surely we should be using the technology in those circumstances. And when they said that to me, I was a bit confused. I didn't know how to respond to that because how could I stand there and say we shouldn't have AI in those settings because in those settings, teachers don't exist. But as you point out, that very often there are adults in those settings. The problem is that those adults, for whatever reason, haven't had the training or support that they need to become experienced and qualified and competent educators. So if we put these tools into those situations, the Ardmores, well then surely that's going to help the children. And those children, they have a human rights education. Surely that's going to help. But it forgets lots of things. Firstly, lots of these places we're talking about, they don't have electricity. But how's the tech going to work? Well, let's imagine they do have electricity. They often don't have the internet. But how are they going to connect? 
And let's imagine they do have the internet as well. Often they don't have uh, professionals there who are capable of fixing the technology, the laptops, whatever, or the phones when they stop working. And we all know these tools stop working all the time. So without that, these tools are just going to work for a few months, they're going to break, they're going to sit on the shelf and not be used anymore. And all it's really going to do, putting these technologies into those situations, is going to help a very small cohort of students. And yes, they might benefit from it, and yes, they might do better. But it doesn't address the real problem that we're talking about. And the real problem is not the fact that the children are not getting the education they deserve. That's a fundamentally important symptom. But the real cause, the real problem, is that the societies locally, but also internationally, are not putting the emphasis in, not providing the support, the professional development, the connections that these potential teachers need. So going back to an earlier conversation, what can we be doing with this tool? Well, in that circumstance, perhaps we should be using the tools to support those individuals become qualified, experienced, professional educators. And there are ways that that could happen using the technology to help build networks between different villages, between the villages and the city centre and the, the teacher training centres and so so forth. So we need to think about how we can use these technologies um, to actually support educators directly so that they have the opportunity to learn more, to become more professional, to become more experienced. And it's only in that way we'll be able to help those children who really need um, that education. In other words, depending on the technology, I guarantee it's not going to solve anything. We have to think about the people. Okay, there's Radio Labor. That was a teacher talking about AI. I mean, we're familiar with the fact that people are familiar with the fact, I guess, a little bit more in terms of entertainment, the threat to uh, entertainment workers through AI and the importance of AI in the negotiations around contract for uh, actors and writers. But did we think of teachers? Okay, teachers are, are they going to be replaced by AI? If you take a certain view of education, the banking view where you open up the kid's head and pour knowledge in and put the top back on, that's, that's where AI could replace teachers. If it's just about simply delivering information or delivering lessons kind of education we want would use AI, would use AI to educate kids in the importance of their own lives and their own importance and their ideas and dreams for their future. Anyway, it's a, it's a conundrum and it's going to come up. It's going to happen. AI will arrive. Okay, I want to play a little music now while I take a break. 
see you back on the other side. Go ahead, take a break, and uh, we'll see you in a bit. Tears and partying may make us forlorn, but with the dawn, a new day is born. So I'll say good night, sweetheart. Though I'm not beside you. Good night, sweetheart. Still, my love will guide you. Dreams enfold you in each one. I'll hold you. Good night. Good night, sweetheart. Good night.
a little bebop there, a little get-up-and-go music for a Saturday morning. Hope you're having a good Saturday morning. This is Labor and Love Radio, where we tell you how it is. One person gets a dollar they didn't work for. Someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. You don't have a seat at the table, the negotiating table, that is, where you work. You're on the menu. And never but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. Right now I want to feature a local merchant. A good friend of mine, who you may or may not know, named Josie. Josie has a restaurant and has had a restaurant for many, many years in the mission. The restaurant is called San Jalisco. Como México no hay dos, y como San Jalisco tampoco. There's nothing like Mexico, this wants to say, and there's nothing like San Jalisco. For over 40 years, the Ibarra family has been serving up the very best in Mexican food to the people of San Francisco. What's your favorite? Enchiladas? Tacos? Chilaquiles? The ultimate in birria? The best salsa and chips in town brought to you before you order? How about your favorite vegetarian? Burritos and tacos. They got them. Find them all and more at San Jalisco, owner of 20th and South Van Ness, in the very heart of the mission, El Mero Mero. Come on down to San Jalisco, where the food tells you you're in Mexico. And when you do go by there, tell them you heard about San Jalisco. From The Bee on Labor and Love, on Mutiny Radio for another month. And then we'll see what happens. Okay, I wanted, I've been referring, you know, all morning to this thing about Anatomy of a Captive Meeting. Now, the boss at a company, a site, has the right to call in a meeting and make it mandatory that you attend And listen to them as they tell you how bad unions are. And they spend a lot of money. Union-busting lawyer, legal companies make a lot of money. The secret meetings management doesn't want you to know about. And this is on Labor Lab. 
Today, I need to discuss something that has important legal implications for our company and our future. So I want to be very clear about what I say. So I'm going to be reading this word for word, and I'm going to ask that you please hold questions for now. Knowable Foods is an example of a, you know, seemingly progressive company, um, you know, with customers that had an image in the community that it was a good company with good values. And when workers went to organize, it ran, you know, a model anti-union campaign. I've been told that people are asking you to sign union authorization cards from the United Food and Commercial Workers Union, which is the UFCW. And that the union has said that it can protect you and give you a voice. Captive audience meeting is a meeting set up by the employer. It's mandatory. It's on work time, lasts half an hour to two hours, where workers are required to sit and listen to management campaign against the union. For that first meeting specifically, it was not even described as a discussion that was going to even mention a union or a possible union. This was described as an all-team meeting, which is something that we did regularly but obviously it didn't end up being that. So let's be honest, unions can be a good thing. Our company supports organized labor where it's needed, and we think it's absolutely critical that all employees have a voice in the workplace. But we didn't want to go into this without understanding what it meant, how it could affect our jobs, and how unions operate. As it progressed, it began to feel more and more hostile. Right now, a union would be a terrible thing for you and for No Evil Foods. Changes that are necessary for our business to be able to survive and thrive could be significantly more difficult with a union contract in place. So I ask you to think really hard about all that progress that we've made so far and what that indicates for the future of our team at No Evil Foods and your future as a part of this team. Nobody likes their, their livelihood threatened. These people have families and lives that they need to maintain. And um, it, it's an effective tool to scare people out of doing what could help them. The way that they were threatening us, they, it was never really, you're going to lose your jobs. You're going to lose your pay. It was always, you might lose your jobs. You might lose your pay. You don't, we don't know what's going to happen. And, you know, they never outright said it, but it was always implied. So it's like, they'll get you halfway there, and then you just do the math in your head for the rest of it. The threats were always veiled. Nothing that you have right now in terms of wages or benefits is set in stone. It could all change during this bargain. You could get more than what you currently have. You could get the same thing that you currently have. You could get less than you currently have. When you were a union buster, what were some of the tools that you used, or the tactics you used to uh, keep unions off the property or to weaken the union that was on the property? It basically was all on the offensive. It was all attacking the union as being some outsider, being some foreign outside interloper that really had no real concerns about the people. It was misdefining the union. It was taking the letters you and I out of union and making the union something other than that group of people who came together to be a union. It was attack, attack, attack. I would attack from every front I could, and that is the job of the union buster. I, was, I, I taught management, and I, and, I, and I practiced 
that when you're in an endeavor to bust a union, whether it's to bust them, fracture them, weaken them, whatever, whatever the motive or goal may be, that you never defend yourself. If the union, if you could ever get me on the defensive, you'd beat my pants off. But I put so many things out there that you had to defend that you lost sight of the real issues. I had so many things out there that you had to juggle and go chase that the real heart and soul issues were gone. Management came and uh, they had a, a big uh, meeting with uh, everybody in the mid-shift and kind of, you know, try to flex their muscle. They come up with much more subtle strategies. They use the carrot more than the stick. And the carrot can be promises. The carrot can be um, that they make little improvements, not nothing big, but little improvements, but enough so workers think, ah, if we don't campaign, we get rewarded. When you unlock another Noeville milestone achievement, you'll be rewarded with a gift that you really want or really need. We've added a 75 cent shift differential for second shift because these are less preferred work hours for many, and we recognize that. We've also increased a bi-weekly staff meal to a weekly staff meal, continued to increase the size and quality of our snack program, and added awesome coffee that also benefits animal welfare organizations. This is the biggest opportunity of our lives and the biggest gamble of our lives. We're literally all in. Everything we have is invested in this company. Everything we own, our home, our possessions, they're guaranteeing loans that we had to get to buy the equipment that's on the floor that you guys use every day to make a product. They really played up on fears of, I almost want to argue that it was housing insecurity. Just the fact that they focused in on our houses tied to this. Um, because ironically, they knew that the employees there would be able to sympathize with housing insecurity. Language is part of captive audience meetings and the employer is trying to make workers insecure, unsettled, um, and to create division and conflict. And so um, playing one group against each other, implying an uncertain future, economic future if the union came in, implying that all relationships would change, all the good things they'd have will disappear. Those are, those are the elements of a captive audience meeting. But the thing that will catch employers off guard the most is when you don't get scared. So learn about anti-union campaigns, talk about them. So then when it happens, you go, yes, I, I, I knew they were going to do that. And then it doesn't feel as scary. For those of you who fear that Noeville Foods is on a quick path to sell our business and walk away and leave you without a job, 
I want to be very clear with you and dispel that myth right here, right now. That story is truly so far from the truth. We are at the beginning of a journey, nowhere near the end. Locally based vegan food company are speaking out saying their employer laid off the entire production crew. No Evil Foods provided a statement to Business Insider confirming they've laid off their entire production crew and are moving from in-house manufacturing to co-packing manufacturer. Just wish they would have went about it different. Like, hey, we give you a two weeks head up. Maybe some type of severance. You know, give me a little bit to, you know, to hold me over for the rest of the month. They will tell you in any captive audience meeting, um, you know, anything could happen when the union comes in. This could be, uh, all of these terrible things could happen. All of those things could still happen if you don't vote a union in. And No Evil Foods is the perfect example of this. If everybody's going along with the employer and you're, you know, there are only a small number of you who, who you know, are willing to wear your buttons or speak up, then it can be quite intimidating. On the other hand, if workers go into those meetings and they do speak up and they, you know, and the employer loses control of the meeting, then it backfires because it shows that, that, you know, they have power. Okay, that's uh, Labor Lab. Let's see what else Labor ha Lab. Why captive audience meetings should be banned in all 50 states. We're not getting that page. Okay, we'll have to get on back on that next week. I want to talk about an alternative, a proposal to end all captive meetings. Okay, so what's going on? What's going on here? Let's see. Oakland teachers. And we're back to the Gaza issue, which. These days you can't get in very far away from. But Oakland teachers let's play it. This is uh Fox Fox San Francisco. Took part in a pro Palestinian teach in for students. It happened despite a warning from the district that that curriculum has not been approved. KTV's Brooks DeRose joins us from our newsroom with a look at what was taught. Well, Claudine, organizers are calling this teach in a success and say students ask lots of questions. It is seen as an alternative to what organizers say is a pro Israel curriculum. Well, participating teachers say this was a chance to expose students to more perspectives about the history of Palestine and the Middle East. 
Titled From Gaza to Oakland, organizers say this webinar played in several school classrooms. Leading off with a video of Bay Area protests against the war in Gaza, then several discussions with pro-Palestinian activists. So basically, Israeli militias kicked out my grandmother and over 800,000 other Palestinians by targeting their homes, massacring villages. This teach-in was not sanctioned by the district. After school Wednesday, some students told us other lessons did happen, but only in certain classes with certain teachers, drawing mixed reviews from parents. They're just rogue teachers that want to push their political agenda uh, despite the fear and confusion that it's calling causing among a lot of students, including Jewish students like my son. I don't see how it can hurt the kids as long as, you know, it's the truth. The Oakland Education Association says 60% of union reps voted to move forward with the teach-in. Organizers say the goal was to make discussions Palestine-focused through webinars and speakers hearing diverse perspectives. As a Jewish teacher, this is a very important issue for me. We feel that the OUSD curriculum has been very one-sided has, has uh, leaned very heavily on the Israeli educational lobby. Organizers estimate 100 teachers took part, teaching history, geography, and culture, yet upsetting some Jewish parents. I told him if he feels uncomfortable, he should leave the classroom. The district superintendent criticized the curriculum this week, calling it harmful and divisive. Jewish advocacy groups agree. We're hoping that the district's gonna hold teachers accountable if they violate the district guidance for spreading inaccurate biased materials for teaching things that really don't belong in their classroom. The union says their contract allows teachers to speak openly about current events with their students. One parent says it's too early for his kindergartner to think critically about a complex and nuanced topic. If it comes to just information about a country, it's part of like geographic. That's one thing, but going deep into politics, is, they don't understand, they don't even realize what they're talking about. Now, some against this teach-in want to see the district dole out discipline to send a strong message. That can't be the way it is. They need to show more courage. That's my district. Show more courage for our kids. I've reached out to the district several times and heard nothing back, so we don't know if there will be any consequences for participating teachers. Teach-in organizers say this isn't over. They're already planning more pro-Palestine lessons but have not yet said when. In the newsroom, Brooks Jarose, KTVU Fox 2 News. So Brooks, I know that you haven't heard back from the district, but they did make their stance clear earlier this week. It sounds like the union has also taken the stance that from where they stand and where the contract stands, they think this is within the bounds of what teachers can do. Well, they say it's within bounds in terms of the contract, in terms of voting members of the union, it was 60-40. So 60% were in favor of this teach-in, 40% were not. Uh, so that's sort of, there's still some division even within the teachers union itself. Okay, we'll keep following it. Thanks yeah. so much. Brooks mm -hmm. Rose, live from the newsroom. Okay, that's the, that's the Oakland teachers union. So here's a question, okay? They talked about little kindergarten kids. Um, I guess that's, that's an issue. I mean, how do you talk to kindergarten kids about a war? Okay. The real, the real lesson is there should be no wars to talk about. Then little kids could be safe from this kind of discussion. But 
for older kids, middle school, high school. This is part and parcel of their lives, what's going on in societies around them. If there are wars going on, our young people should be able to hear all points of view and decide for themselves. Who knows, they might end up fighting a war over in Palestine. The idea of shutting down such discussions is the wrong approach. The idea is to have different points of view presented to the kids. Let them discuss it. Let them research. Let them find out what's going on there. These are teaching opportunities. This is, this is not any time to shut down teachers. All right, where are we at now? Labor history. I did want to talk about, well, let's go on, explore. Labor Heritage Foundation website, latest news and updates. Museum workers win in L.A. and Brooklyn. Workers at the Brooklyn Museum, members of the International Union, UAW, voted overwhelmingly to ratify their first contract on Tuesday. One day before the union was set to strike. New three and a half year contract boosts pay by more than 23%. Workers at the Academy Museum of Motion Pictures are getting much needed pay hikes and other gains in the first contract they negotiated with AFS, AFSCME. Asked me. We all came together to make this happen, and I'm proud to have represented my co-workers in this historic win, said Cheryl Jones. A visitor experience associate at the Academy Museum. If anybody knows about a short labor history book, 159 to 250 pages, Starting from 1619 and extending to the U.S. labor movement today, this would be used in an undergraduate labor history course. Any and many suggestions would be greatly appreciated. This is all on labor heritage. And there are other union things here. Labor video of the week. See this. Mm, I'm looking for labor video. Here we go. in a restaurant.
working to cook and clean the restaurant. Travel posters. She's making muffins. She's sitting in reflecting.
I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1833. That was the day that the Oberlin Collegiate Institute was founded in North Central Ohio. Today, it's known as Oberlin College. The college was the project of two Presbyterian ministers, John J. Seifert and Philo Stewart. Their goal was to form a college based on Christian principles. In the early days, tuition was free and students were expected to give their labor to help sustain the school and community. The college motto, learning and labor, harkens back to that time. From early on, the college was different than many other institutions of higher learning of its day. In 1835, Oberlin became the first predominantly white college to admit black male students. Two years later, Oberlin broke new ground again letting in women and becoming the first co-ed college in the nation. By opening its doors to black and women enrollees, Oberlin gave these students a chance to study and pursue careers that might otherwise have been closed to them. By the turn of the 20th century, one-third of all black professionals in the United States had graduated from Oberlin. In 1862, Mary Jane Patterson became the first African-American woman to earn her bachelorette degree from Oberlin. She became a teacher and principal. Another black graduate, John Mercer Langston, would become the first black lawyer in Ohio and first black congressman to represent Virginia in Washington, D.C. Oberlin College was also known for its stance supporting the abolition of slavery and later supporting civil rights. The school was a stop on the Underground Railroad which helped enslave people escape into freedom to Canada. And to this day, the Oberlin community is still on the cutting edge of opportunity and change. Like what you hear? Check out more at laborhistoryin2.com. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. This day in labor history, the year was 1833. That was the day that prominent abolitionists convened in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania to found the American Anti-Slavery Society. They drew up a constitution demanding an immediate end to slavery. They also demanded full civil rights for people of color. These activists distinguished themselves from the American Colonization Society, which advocated repatriation of free blacks to Liberia. Coming off the heels of the Nat Turner rebellion in 1831, much of the society's work consisted of organizing petitions, meetings, and lecture tours. These activities emphasized slavery's brutality and inhumanity and its immoral nature. They also printed and distributed anti-slavery literature like the National Anti-Slavery Standard newspaper. The society claimed 250,000 members by 1840. They formed 2,000 local chapters and published 20 journals. Founders included prominent abolitionists like William Lloyd Garrison, Arthur and Lewis Tappan, Theodore Weld, and many Quakers and free blacks. Fiery orators like Frederick Douglass and the Grimke sisters soon emerged as key leaders. These anti-slavery fighters endured mob violence, including riots and even murder, like that of Elijah Lovejoy in 1837. The society split in 1840. Garrison condemned the U.S. Constitution for its denial of freedom to African Americans. 
he and his supporters pushed for secession from the South if they would not abolish slavery. They also promoted women into leadership positions. More conservative elements considered this too radical. They split to form the American and foreign anti-slavery society. Despite this, the abolitionist movement grew exponentially. Anti-slavery ideas gained traction in new political parties. I'm Rick. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1944. That was the day that seven employees at Detroit's Dodge truck plant stopped working to protest the firing of a union brother. When five of the seven were fired for the stoppage, it sparked a wildcat strike. Another 320 workers downed their tools and left the plant. It was World War II. The Dodge truck plant had been converted into wartime production. Workers there built heavy trucks to ship to allies in China. The unions had signed on to a no-strike pledge after the bombing of Pearl Harbor. President Franklin Delano Roosevelt demanded labor peace to aid the war effort. Leaders of the AFL and CIO agreed to no-strike, no-lockout clauses. The CIO went even further and agreed to give up overtime pay. Most union members were not consulted on the pledge and did not vote on it. When they learned about the pledge after the fact, many workers who had just come off victorious organizing drives were in no mood to make concessions. They witnessed surging wartime profits for their employers and no cap on executive salaries while they had to deal with wage freezes and rising inflation. Many were confronted with increasingly unsafe working conditions violations of newly won contracts, and arbitrary discipline and firings. Despite the no-strike pledge, wildcat strikes were common. During the war, there were over 14,000 strikes involving more than 6 million workers. In 1944 alone, when the workers walked out at the Detroit Dodge truck plant, there had been more strikes in auto plants than at any other time in the auto industry's history. Workers found that short, spontaneous walkouts quickly resolved their grievances, regardless of the no-strike pledge. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois... I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1907. That was the day that troops from the 22nd Infantry arrived in Goldfield, Nevada, on the orders from President Teddy Roosevelt. 1,900 gold miners organized by the Western Federation of Miners were on strike. They walked out in late November when cash-strapped mine operators began paying them in scrip. Local 77 held considerable power in the mines and the town for two years. They had won the eight-hour day both for their members and established it as an industrial standard throughout Goldfield. By 1907, the mine operators and Nevada Governor John T. Sparks had had enough. Wobblies were on trial elsewhere, falsely accused of murdering Idaho Governor Frank Stoutenberg for his role in the 1899 miner strike in Cordelline. Many miners in Goldfield had been active in that strike. Sparks feared that with no force capable of protecting the operators, another mine war was inevitable. The mine owners convinced Sparks that the miners were heavily armed and capable of dynamiting mine property. At the same time, the operators tried to provoke local 70 
37 minors to engage in illegal activities for which they could be arrested. They also used the financial panic of 1907 to pay workers in scrip and as a pretext to smash the union, even though the gold standard remained relatively stable. The owners then made their moves. They reduced wages and threatened workers with mass firings and strike breakers. But the union remained disciplined and peaceful during the strike. It was clear by the following March that the presence of federal troops gave the mine owners the impetus they needed to drive local 77 miners out of the mines and out of Goldfield. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the... of the program, it requires a lot of different facts of life that we must know about. Labor friends, Willie B signing off. And when you think about Willie Dixon raising the, the various nations of the earth. It don't make sense if you can't make peace no matter what you can do. you next week if one person gets a dollar they didn't work for someone else and do anything we want to do have created miracles but it don't make sense when we can't make peace you know you made everything else wise men great men from every nation in the world, all the countries in the world have all kinds of countries. Of swimming through a sea of podcasts. Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of mutiny radio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shitface McRat. <laughs> Namaste. Every Monday at 6 p.m., it's Joke Workshop, streaming live on MutinyRadio.fm. Lift the veil from your third eye on joke creation and what it takes to be a stand-up comic. In the five shakasanas of San Francisco's comedy scene, this all-ages open mic invites comedy. Oh, pre-sign by Venmoing 2 to $5 at Mutiny Radio. Join us live for a small and special audience at the Mutiny Radio studio and gallery performance space, 2781 21st Street at Florida Street in the deep...
Deep, deep mission. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Does my ponytail look cool? Thank you. Namaste. Tuesday used to be the most unlikely night for fun. But every week at 6 p.m., come to OMG's Tuesday Open Mic. And see comics work out new material for free. For free. They get your Tuesday night party on with two-for-one well drink specials during the 6 to 8 p.m. show. Check out Eventbrite to reserve your free seat every Tuesday, 6 p.m. At OMG on Savory 6th Street. Savory 6th Street. Show up to go up. Hey, kids. It's your pal, Spiderman. <laughs> Sorry, Spiderman. Mortimer Spiderman. When I'm not swinging through the senior facility, best in Mysterio at Boggle, or getting beautifully plowed by the rhino, I'm headed down to Mutiny Radio at the corner of 21st and Florida. They got some schlemiels doing the laugh laugh. But hey, don't be a schmuck and donate 2 to $5 on... Hold, hold on, what is this? Let me get my glasses. The print's too small. Hold on. Venmo? That's not real. What is that, Swedish? You knew that, right? This is in San Francisco. I'll drown it on. I'll, it's nap time. Weekly comedy at the best neighborhood bar in the city. Join your friends from Mutiny Radio every Thursday at 8 p.m. at the Bar on Dolores at 29th and Dolores. Starting after any very important sports game that might happen to be on, you're guaranteed a night of laughter for free. And when paired with the drink specials and the nicest bartender in San Francisco, it'll become a Thursday ritual. Show up to go up for comics, and please, reserve your free tickets on Eventbrite so we know you're coming to laugh. There is... <laughs> happy, happy hour the, is when the comedy is the cheapest. Happy hour, the most free two hours of hour-long comedy on the radio and internet streaming Live, 2781 21st Street. Come down, be in the audience. Dog friendly. Dog friendly. We are. Mutiny Radio is absolutely dog friendly. Ooh, a dog party. Ain't no party like a dog party. <laughs> dog party at Mutiny Radio. Every Friday. Oh, man, oh, man. This is the best thing I've ever done, I think. Save a man's life. Oh. 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 And improving my life. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's start the interview. Okay, okay. Mr. Cody. Uh, you do sound check now. Oh well, it sounds always okay. This is JW. Six, always. six, six, five, four, three, two, two, one. Action. Mr. Kuti, if you could make a documentary on African music, what would it look like? I don't want to make a documentary on African music. No. If you could make one. I could work more. What do you mean exactly? Well, if you could make... Okay, suppose you're the director of a pop show on Dutch television, and you could make a documentary on African music, what would it look like? 60 Minutes of Fela Kuti? <laughs> no. I probably wouldn't talk for myself at all. You see, it's very difficult to answer. Um... Because my music is, uh, is 
It's not for me to want to project myself as such. Mm-hmm. I do project myself because I do play the music. But what I really want to project is the happenings in the African continent itself. So I've never thought about wanting um, to write African music or make a history out of it. No. I've never thought about it. Because my, my main my main preoccupation right now is what is making Africans retrogress. So music is only a very small part of it. Exactly. See. But music is a small part of it. But at the same time, I consider music to be effective, like a weapon to inform people. You see. Okay, like... If I don't play my music now, I won't be sitting here today to talk yeah. about the problems of Africa. So, my music is like an attraction to inform people. Mm-hmm. See, yeah, it is the information side of the music that is important. Because uh, I'm not really, I don't really care about history of African music. Other people will write that. I prefer other people to write that. Okay, let's assume you're the man who wants to play music. There has been a few years that you couldn't play music, that you've been in prison, right? Yes. What happened? Why? I was in prison? Yeah. I was in prison simply because of what I talk about Africa. You see, the, the African leaders we have all over Africa today are very preoccupied with their own personal development, personal richness, you know. So it is, it is, uh, it is, they are committing crimes against the African people. And they're not the right persons on that And they're not the right place. persons in that place, you see. So it is, uh, Um, but let's be concrete. Why were you put in prison? It's not because of okay. just the simple fact that you told the guy upstairs that he's wrong. <laughs> That's the reason. Is that the reason? That's the reason. But what did you say then that was wrong? I said that they are putting us into bondage, they're making us slaves, they follow white man's footsteps too much. They don't want to improve Africa as Africa should be improved. They sh- they are not authentic, and they are corrupt. How does Africa have to improve? Africa has to improve by its own methods. You see, every race has a reason. JW. Mr. Kuti, if you could make a documentary on African music, what would it look like? 